Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Here's a little phrase to get us started today, okay? This is not going to be the, uh, the, like, you know, the, the main take-home of the message. I just want to give that caveat before I give it in. And you can probably finish this with me, right? Life is tough, and then you die. Life is tough, and then you die. That's, a, that's kind of a rough statement, right? I suppose it kind of depends on your personality, doesn't it? Uh, for, for some of you, that just sounds terribly negative and, and, and pessimistic. And for other of you, uh, you're, you say, uh, that sounds about right. That's pretty realistic. I, I kind of like it. I'm going to teach that to my kids, right? It's an interesting phrase to consider from the perspective of the early church, isn't it? When you think about the, the persecuted church. And, and the truth is that Christ offers us abundant life. He offers us abundant life here and now. But what he doesn't promise is an easy life. And Jesus actually told us that the opposite would be the case. And yet, although those who put their faith in, in Christ may not be delivered from suffering and death, they can be confident that they will be victorious. Christians are able to suffer persecution and hardship and difficulty, all while knowing that their God will triumph, that he will build his church, that his kingdom will come. And so when we look at the people of God, we have great reason for hope and encouragement. And when we consider the enemies of God, those who arrogantly oppose him, those who harm his people, we know their end as well, that they will be defeated. And so this morning's message is entitled, Devotion, Deliverance, and Death. And as I mentioned earlier, we're looking at really three stories, three different lives, one characterized by devotion, another story of deliverance, and another that ends in death. And the reality is that these three lives, these three stories, God is glorified in each of them. It turns out that's kind of the point. Like, that's the point of the whole thing, right? That's the point of all of Scripture. That's the point of our very existence is the glory of God. And so here we come to Acts chapter 12 after Peter visits Cornelius and, and King Herod Agrippa realizes that the Jews want him to persecute Christians. They want him to attack the apostles. And this is something that will be pleasing to him and will win him favor as a ruler. And so he, in fact, has James executed, making him the first apostle to be martyred. And God is glorified. Then Agrippa imprisons Peter in order to kill him too. And this is not the script that we would have written, right? When we, when we were all the way back in Acts chapter 2, Right? Christ had promised to send the helper. We got the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people are getting saved. We're like, let's go. We're building the church. Christ is doing exactly what he said. And now we see persecution come. We say, this is not the way we would have planned it. Now, of course, we have the benefit of incredible hindsight. I mean, literally, just the fact that we are here this morning means like something worked out, right? I mean, the gospel got here. 
here we are this morning, a bunch of Christians gathering together, worshiping together, opening our you know, own personal copy of the Bible. And so we get that benefit, and yet these believers didn't have that. There must have been moments of questioning and wondering what in the world is happening. This is not how we thought this was going to go. What are persecuted Christians to do? And the reality is they really could do nothing except pray. But prayer is no small thing. And if there's one takeaway other than the glory of God being evident here this morning, it is the power of prayer and the importance of prayer for us as a people of God. We're going to see it on display this morning. We see the power of God on display in our passage. Don't lose sight of the glory of God in Peter's deliverance. God answers prayer by setting Peter free. And then God deals with the enemy of the church. He deals with Herod's pride and persecution by striking him dead. And the end of today's story, just to give you the conclusion at the beginning, okay? Nobody's allowed to sneak out though, right? Just because you're getting the conclusion first. The end of today's story is that Peter is free, Herod is defeated, God's word continues to spread with even greater success, and his church continues to grow. And all the glory is to God alone. So let's look at some of the details. Start with Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now to be sure, as we go through Acts chapter 12, there are some head scratchers here, maybe some questions. Hopefully we can kind of answer as we go. And I mentioned that this first apostolic martyr is James, the the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. But this is an apostle, and, and, and yet we, we, we already had the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, right? And Stephen gets a couple of chapters to tell his story, and, and his sermon is recorded, and we celebrated this kind of hero of the faith, and yet here, James, son of thunder, gets a sentence. And it's just interesting. We, we might just ask, why does... The young deacon get a lengthy write-up, and James gets a simple sentence. We don't really know the answer to that. S. Lewis Johnson points out a couple of things that I think are, are worthwhile. First, he points out how little the Bible focuses on human heroes. If we were to make a list of the the heroes of the faith, certainly James should be on the list, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a a faithful servant, one who gave his life for his testimony of faith in Christ. He's a genuine hero. But the Bible doesn't propagandize its heroes. In fact, one thing that you ought always remember when you discuss the reliability of Scripture with people is how honest the Word of God is even about its heroes. It's not afraid to show these men and women warts and all. It shares their failures. Why? Because they're not the point of the story. Their God is. And so maybe James gets a brief write-up, and yet James is not the point. The focus is on the true hero. The focus is on 
Jesus Christ, the one hero of the Word of God. Another point that I think we might draw out, lest we feel sorry for James because of his sentence, and not only because of his sentence, but as we look at the context, we see Peter. This is the very next thing, right? <clears throat> Peter gets put in prison, and he gets a God-orchestrated, you know, angel-carried-out, uh, like, divine jailbreak. I mean, this, that's what he gets. James gets killed by a sword. It doesn't exactly seem even, does it? I mean, it doesn't seem fair. You have to wonder, was James thinking, hey, hey where's my deliverance? Where's my awesome story? Where's my angel? But I'm pretty sure James wasn't thinking that because where's James? James is in heaven. James is in glory. James is receiving his reward. So don't feel sorry for James. James got the better deal. Maybe James is thinking, oh, poor Peter. Had <laughs> to stay down there for a while longer, you know? James is ushered into the presence of the Lord and probably hears, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as we jump into the passage and we see this persecution starting up, another kind of persecution orchestrated by another fallen man, Herod, this particular Herod, is Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus all the way back in the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. He's the father of Agrippa II, who would later hear Paul's defense in Acts 20, uh, 25 and 26. And it says in verses 3 and 4, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Herod planned, it seemed, to kill the Gentile-loving Peter right after the Passover while the holiday crowds are still in Jerusalem. I imagine that Herod made certain that Peter was guarded carefully because he probably remembered that Peter had already escaped from prison, Acts chapter 5. And again, as we've been seeing throughout Acts from a, a human perspective, and especially without this benefit of hindsight, the situation seems hopeless. And yet, remember that we said none of this should surprise us. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Christ predicted that just as he was hated, just as he was persecuted, his followers would be. He even specifically mentioned James' suffering. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 39. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. By the way, if your children do this, always say no, right? Just as a precautionary measure, okay? He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. 
And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. So in this story, James and John approach Jesus, and they ask for the places of highest honor in the kingdom. Not a cool thing to do, by the way. Jesus told them, you don't realize what you're asking. You don't realize what's about to unfold here. They don't understand that before the kingdom comes, Christ is going to suffer. Christ is going to die. He's, gonna, he's literally telling them here he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's going to be baptized or immersed in suffering for the sins of the world. Persecution in the most severe sense. And his death on the cross. James and John are a little clueless here. But Jesus tells them that they are going to share in the sufferings of Christ. And so we see in Acts chapter 12, James, the first apostle to be martyred. We see throughout the rest of the New Testament that John endures years of persecution and exile. And so many believers were and continued to be mistreated, killed. In some cases, God rescues his people, and in some cases, they go to their eternal reward. And God uses both death and life to bring great honor to himself. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. This is simply to remind us as we go through the book of Acts, the, the spirit, the attitude of these saints that, that ought to be found in us as well. Paul says in Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Paul says, I, I just want to glorify God. I just want to honor God. I just want to exalt Christ and lift him up no matter what it means, no matter how it happens. God, if it's for your glory, it's, it's for the furtherance of your gospel and for the good of the church that I die, let it happen. Bring it on. If it's that I would live and continue to endure the difficulties and the hardships of life on this earth and persecution and ministry, so be it. Is that your greatest desire? The greatest desire of your life is the greatest desire of your heart is the first thought on your mind when you step a foot out of the bed each morning, morning that God would be glorified. Whatever that means, wherever that takes you, that God would be glorified in you. Back to Acts chapter 12. Let's read the, the story of Paul's imprisonment and release. Acts chapter 12, we're going to look here at, at verses 5 to 17. and kind of get the whole story and then we'll, we'll grab some pieces of it as we go. Starting in verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. 
And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around, around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. A couple of things. Let's start with verse 5. They prayed. And not only did they pray, but they prayed intently. They prayed fervently. Right? The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is no sleepy prayer meeting. They are investing spiritual sweat equity on Peter's behalf. One commentator says that the contrast is obvious. Peter was bound, but prayer was loosed. And yet, it's the night before his execution is scheduled. Things are getting serious, maybe. It's not in the Lord's will to answer the prayer that Peter would be saved and rescued, released. And yet, on the night before his execution, what's Peter doing? Sound asleep. He learned this from Jesus in a boat. That was perhaps a sign that he's trusting the Lord, right? That he knows that his fate is in God's hand and he's okay with that. Incredible, an angel wakes Peter up, leads him out of prison with zero difficulty. I mean, look at the account. The chains fall off. He walks right past the guards. The guards at his side, the guards outside the cell, the guards at the first guard post, the guards at the second guard post, the guards at the main gate. It's as if none of this even exists. I mean, the main gate of the jail just simply opens on its own. When we look at the, the persecution of the church and we're constantly seeing the hardships of the early church, it, it is overwhelming to put us in their position and to consider the power that comes against the church, the power of the religious authorities, the power in this story of, of the jailers, of Herod himself, everything is aligned against them. But then we read this and we see the supernatural working of God and it makes all of these earthly powers, frankly, just look silly. John Stott writes, Here then were two communities, 
the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possessed. We might just ask by way of application, what power stands against you? What are you battling right now? What is aligned against you? Is it, is it a battle uh, with your own sin, a battle with temptation? Is it a battle in your mind with fear and, and anxiety? There are real pressures. There are real hardships in life, real pressures of, of, of finances and relationships. Call out to God. He has power. And I don't know if God will choose to answer your prayer for deliverance from these things, but I do know that he can be trusted and that looking to him and calling on him and and casting your cares on him brings an inner peace even in the midst of turmoil. One of the things we're going to see later on in the story is that they they were surprised, we'll talk about it again, they were surprised to see Peter. They were surprised that their prayer was answered. I don't think it's a lack of faith. I think they were, they were praying, believing, but I also don't think they were presuming on God. I don't think they presumed to know God's will or to know for sure that God would deliver Peter. But he did. But whether he did or whether he did not, they were going to glorify God. They were going to honor him. And so we have this promise that in life or in death, God can be glorified in us. In life or in death, we can be victors. We have an eternity to look forward to, free from sin, free from the consequences of sin on the world and in our own life. And so those of us who know the Lord have more reason to be encouraged, more reason to walk in hope and joy and peace every day than anyone else. And again, it's interesting to see that these faithful praying believers didn't realize what their prayers had accomplished. They're they're still praying when Peter shows up. But we believe that God can do anything he desires. Makes me think of Peter Danica, the, the founder of the Slavic Gospel Association called Peter Dynamite because of his enthusiasm and energy and belief in the power of prayer. And he says, where there is much prayer, there is much power. Where there is little prayer, there is little power. Where there is no prayer, there is no power. He goes on, when there is much prayer, there is much victory and much success in Christian work. If Christian workers do not take time to pray, they will lack the power of God, no matter how talented or gifted they might be. We must be praying men and women. A deep burden for others always results in much prayer. These believers gathered together to pray for Peter are are, are demonstrating divine love, divine fellowship with him. Notice in Acts chapter 12, verse 14 then, that when... 
Rhoda came to see who's at the door, and Peter said, open the door. She recognized him by his voice. She's so overjoyed by the fact that Peter's there that, that she forgets to open the door, so she runs back into the meeting. She says, Peter's out there. And how do you think these Christians, full of faith, praying to the Lord, knowing that God answers prayer, how do they respond? Well, we've read it already. They say, you're crazy. They thought she was, you know, maybe pranking them. They, they, they thought this was like the, you know, the latest TikTok trend was to say, there's an apostle at the door and see, you know, how people react, right? And so here's Peter showing up at Mary's house. The believers are so shocked that they argue about it as Peter's waiting outside. I have to imagine Peter's amused by all of this. But one of the things I, wanna, I want us to note is it's, just, it's such a fun and intriguing story. But don't you just love this girl? This girl, Rhoda, who is a humble servant girl who is now immortalized in the word of God because of her love and her joy for the Apostle Peter. I don't think it's too much to read into this how well she must have known Peter, that she recognized him by his voice, to, to think of what kind of loving fellowship, what kind of kindness must have existed among these saints. And again, she proclaims, Peter's at the door, and they reply, you're, you're out of your mind. This, it, it must be an angel, which is a bit of an odd response, but probably because of their belief in personal guardian angels, but also because there seemed to be with that a, a Jewish superstition that a person's angel looked like the person he was assigned to, which is a terribly disappointing idea to me. Really hope my angel looks better than that. Of course, there's no biblical warrant for that idea. I do think we could find some biblical warrant for the idea of personal angels. Certainly, we find biblical warrant for angels as ministering servants of God, and we've just seen the example of that as God sends his angels to minister and deliver. When they see Peter, they're astonished. You know, God does that, astonishes. How about this for small group discussion tonight? Just have a conversation about what astonishes you. That is to say, what, what act of God in Scripture just blows your mind? What Bible story is it that you say, oh, man, I would love to have been there for that? It's just incredible. When I read that one, I just kind of, I just like feel myself there. And I'm just amazed at my God. What answer to prayer have you seen in your own life, in your own story, in the lives of others, in the life of this church? How have our prayers been answered and we've been amazed at the work of God on our behalf? What is it in, in God's creation that astonishes you, that puts you in awe? Something probably comes to mind immediately, right? Something in nature you say, oh, this is, my, this is my jam, this is my thing. I, I, I love to go to this place and to, to look out and just be amazed. And, and not just be amazed at, at nature, but be amazed at the creator of nature and his power. And the beauty is astonishing. What attribute of God, as you study Scripture and the doctrine of the perfections of God, what attribute of God makes you just bury your head in your hands and feel like dust? 
What attribute of God makes you throw your hands up in praise? Let's remember these things again and let's share them together as we join this evening. So back to the picture of the man Peter in chapter 12. If you don't haven't noticed already, uh, Peter's pretty chill, okay? First of all, Peter's a little oblivious to what's going on in the first place. I mean, I really like this whole idea that, you know, after he's freed from prison, he goes, well, looks like an angel has freed me from prison. Like, yeah, that's, what, that's what's been happening. What, where, you know, I mean, he must have really been asleep, right? I got some kids that sleep that hard that I think, you know, we could like, you know, pack them up head out on a trip, whatever, and they wake up and be like, where are we? What's going on? What's happening? And Peter was asleep. He was thinking this was a dream or a vision of some kind. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, I'm free from prison. And then Peter just kind of tells the church, let James know and, and the brethren know what happened so God can be glorified so that they can know that I'm free. And then Peter just kind of wisely disappears before Herod comes looking for him. But it's worth mentioning that even though it's a passing reference, it is incredibly cool to note that James is even in this story. Okay? First of all, lest you be confused, this is a different James. All right? This is key, right? <laughs> because we already, we already know what happened to the other James, James the Apostle. This is James, the brother of Jesus. What an incredible picture of God's grace. What an incredible story of redemption that his name would even be mentioned here. And that James essentially at this point is recognized as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And if you'll allow me just a moment to have a little rabbit trail just because we see the name James here and I kind of love a good redemption story, flip over to James chapter 1. Just verse 1, the introduction to James' book, James says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. You understand that James and, and, and Jesus' other brothers did not recognize the messianic character of their older brother. Jesus had four younger brothers, at least two younger sisters. They didn't believe in him while he was still alive. William Varner says his brothers lived so close to the light that they were blinded by the light. And yet we know that eventually James was brought to the light. There's no specific mention in Scripture of James' conversion, but it, it must have happened as a result of the appearance of Christ at his resurrection. And certainly you would think that growing up with Jesus would be a pretty good way to help you believe in Jesus. But certainly, if that didn't work, the resurrection ought to seal the deal, right? And it's just a reminder for us this morning that, that God is in the business of incredible stories of redemption that we think are beyond hope, beyond happening. You have someone that you've shared the gospel with over and over and over again, Someone so dear to you that it's a constant matter of, of prayer and possibly worry for you. 
Listen, until a person draws their last breath, there is still hope. I have heard story after story after story of deathbed conversions. Story after story of children who turned away only to at some point through the power of the Spirit have their minds illumined to the truths that they've heard their entire life. Parents with wayward children, do you think, where did we go wrong? We tried so hard to teach them everything they needed to know. We always had them in Awana. They learned all the verses. They got all the little things in their crown. Well, James grew up with Jesus. That's better than Awana. And yet he rejected. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to be reminded that this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, which emphasizes so well and hinges on the the resurrection of Christ and, and even tells us that the risen Jesus personally appeared to James. God is seeking him out. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to keep us then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. See this beautiful description of the gospel, beautiful description of the salvation that is available to all through Jesus Christ, by which, in which he he demonstrated that he has victory over the power of sin and death by his own resurrection. And when James came face to face with his resurrected brother, he couldn't help but believe. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see Jesus' mother and brothers praying with the other early believers. And we know that James' brother Jude was also brought to the light. And one of the beautiful things that we see in in James' book here, and even in the introduction to his book, how does James refer to himself? James, brother of Jesus, the Messiah, creator of the universe. No, he calls himself a servant. This is a simple, common word, bond servant, slave, doulos. Paul says the same thing. Peter, Jude, John, Timothy, even Moses and David and Old Testament men of God are called servants. Because remember, we're not the heroes. All glory to God. And so James goes from rejecting, from disbelieving, from being blinded by the light, and James is now bearing the light. Several passages that indicate the major role that James played as the eventual leader of the Jerusalem believers. 
Paul recognizes him as the number one man in, in that movement. He becomes known as James the Just. What an incredible title, right? Anytime your name is modified by a, you know, a, a beautiful character trait, you're probably doing something right, right? At home, they, call, they just call me Dad the Patient. Check out the, these passages as well. You can just jot them down. Acts chapter 15 talks about James presiding over the first council of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church, which probably has as many as 70 elders. Galatians chapter 1, he's meeting with Peter and Paul. Galatians chapter 2, he's listed first in the order of the, the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John. And so, rabbit trail over, but just consider this amazing redemption story. The beauty of the fact that this name is even here in the text this morning. God is not only setting prisoners free from physical jail, as he does with Peter. He is setting prisoners free from spiritual death. Back to Acts chapter 12, then look at, Verses 18 to 25 for the rest of the story. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. You can only imagine that conversation, right? When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Excellent bedtime story <laughs> for your children. I absolutely love how one commentator puts this. He says, they were gathered in the stadium with the Mediterranean sparkling nearby and the sound of its waves lapping up on the shore. It was a perfect day to be praised, Herod thought, and he made the most of it by dressing in royal robes, which, according to Jewish historian Josephus, were woven with silver thread. As the sun sparkled off of his robes, Herod soaked up their gushing praise. Well, he didn't soak up much of it, did he? Before an angel of the Lord struck him down. And notice the double smite in chapter 12. Did you see this? If you got the King James, it's a smite. If you got another version, it's probably a struck. Go back to verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7. We have this kind of humorous picture that we've been painting of this hard-sleeping apostle, and the angel interrupts Peter's beauty sleep by giving him a strike, a smite, a heavy blow on the side and telling him to wake up. This is how I wake my sons up on Saturdays when it's time to do chores. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse 23, we read, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, smote him. 
So we have two men, right? One of the men God struck for release, and the other God struck for retribution. Which side would you like to be on? You want to be on the side of God whereby you find deliverance from him, caring, loving, prodding, even discipline, yes, as a child? Or do you want to be on the side of God's wrath? This is an act of God. God strikes him because he did not give God glory. That's exactly what the text says. A lot of passages that would remind us of this. Psalm 115, verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Agrippa didn't recognize that. Everyone who is called by my name, Isaiah 43, 7 says, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Every man and woman is created in the image of God and created for the glory of God. Jeremiah 9, let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. God hates pride. God hates idolatry. And the reality is, folks, that one way or another, God gets glory. God always humbles the proud. God is glorified the easy way or the hard way. A great character study, a great study to do for, for family devotions or just for your own personal time in the Word, do some character studies in Scripture and, and make a list a list of those who humbled themselves before God and those who were humbled by God. There's a big difference between those two things, you know that? To, to willingly, to voluntarily bow the knee before God in, in worship and in recognition of His glory for God to have to humble you because of your stubborn pride. At some point, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. I would just ask this morning, why wait? Why persist in rebellion and sin, in living for yourself, when you can so easily humble yourself and recognize your sin and recognize your need and come to Christ? God also struck Herod because Herod went after God's people. And God, as a protective father, takes Herod out. And so now Herod is ended, but the church is just beginning. Herod's body is being eaten by worms, but the church is flourishing. And as it seems to so often, we, we read these stories of persecution and hardship and even martyrdom, and then yet the, the tagline is something like verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Maybe not in the way we thought it would happen, maybe not in the way we had it planned, but in God's great providence and design, he is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. Verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. 
taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So Paul's first missionary, missionary journey is about to begin. It's interesting that we end here with a with the transition to the ministry, the missionary journey of Paul, because think about the parallels between the life of Herod and the life of Saul. Consider what happened to Herod because of his pride, because of his hateful persecution of God's people, and then consider God's incredible mercy on Paul. Is it any wonder that Paul so consistently expresses his unworthiness, his gratitude after being forgiven for persecuting the church. So again, we see the glory of God on display. Whether in the devotion of the life and martyrdom of James, whether in the deliverance of Paul, as God supernaturally orchestrates his release so he can continue on in ministry, or whether in the death of Herod, in the midst of his rebellion and hatred, God is glorified. Let's pray. Father, our greatest desire is that you would be glorified in us as individuals, as a church. We desire that all we do would be done for your glory. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we stray from that singular focus. When we get our eyes on the worries and the fears and the frets of this life, when we immerse ourselves in things that really have no eternal value, Father, bring us back again to the thing that is most important. And Lord, we certainly praise you for the incredible power of prayer that we have as your children the privilege of coming boldly before the throne of God and being able to, to cast our cares on you. Thank you for being a God who loves and cares for your children. It's in your name we pray. Amen.